I remember just coming back to my Airbnb. That that was my that I was renting like a little room in like a house, and just like there were days when I would just sit there and like wonder if I made the right decision. You know, I was like I don't know if this is the right choice. I'm not making any money. I should I not have been so stubborn? Should I just have got you know pursued something safe? You know, and I think ultimately it was me who told my parents like, look, give me just like one or two more months. If I can't find a job in these in, in this industry, I will find another job. It doesn't matter what job it is. I'll just find another job and and I'll just do that. It starts with just taking that leap. Man, you have to work hard. You have to be incredibly smart. Choose something that even if it fails, even if it fails you are going to be proud of it. doesn't matter how badly you got beaten down. Be kind, be kind, be kind. Become a better person, a better leader, a better business. Go through that. <laughs> I'm Samuel Donner, and this is Finding Founders. Struggling to find work in the entertainment industry and fearful of disappointing her parents, Inga's filmmaking career could have ended her first year in L.A. Maybe it was time to look at something practical, something safe. Flash forward, and we now know Inga Lam as the immensely talented video producer and food influencer at BuzzFeed's Tasty, Bring Me, About to Eat, and her own personal channel. She appeared all over your feed in viral videos like Mom Teaches Daughter How to Make Bao and I Made the Impossible Cotton Candy from Ancient China. These videos have racked up tens of millions of views as she shares her cultural perspective with an eager audience. But the creative path wasn't always that clear. Growing up in Hong Kong, her parents urged her to play it safe. But Inga knew she wanted more. So uh, could you tell me about maybe some of like your earliest memories growing up? Yeah, so, you know, I think I was born in California, but I went back to Hong Kong pretty soon after because of my dad's work and um growing up in hong kong was so i think for me i was too young to be able to recognize any sort of significant difference between living in like two different countries and i would say growing up in asia that was all i knew for the longest time you know um and i think i was fortunate enough at least i think my you know so like in that environment my mom placed a lot of emphasis especially on like raising me right you know I uh, and, and in that case it's just like sending me to like the the best school she could send me to you know and giving me sending me to tutoring classes you know um but I think I would say for the longest time I didn't really sort of it, it how do you say like it wasn't like I I didn't realize that I was living in a, like a box until I feel like I grew a little bit older. Yeah, it's like you don't recognize your culture when that's all you've ever known. It's only when you're maybe introduced to another culture that you realize, oh, wow, like these are different. And now I understand what are the boundaries of my culture? Because before it was just like life and regular life. Yeah, that that's exactly it. You know, like it's life as you know it and you don't really question as much. I think there was always a part of me though that wanted to for example, go back to California. There was always a part of me that wanted to know what was there on the other side of the world. I mean, part of it has to do with, you know, how I will say like media, like Hollywood glamorizes it. You know, America is like the land of everything possible. And I'm like, well, I, I was born there. And like, I feel like I need to go back there to discover my full potential. So I think there was a little bit of that, um, but it was more like a dream 
at that point, you know, when I was younger. What is the culture in Hong Kong? Um, if, if America is this pl- like place where anything is possible, you could like be as creative as you want. Um, or at least that's what you saw in, in the movies. Like what was, what was Hong Kong? In Hong Kong, like, don't get me wrong. I love this city. I love how fast paced it is. And I love how cosmopolitan it is. But at the same time, I feel like Part of it has to do with how, for example, like the apartment, like I think Hong Kong right now is like the most expensive place to buy an apartment like in the world. When you have this sort of idea over your head of like, I can, I need to work to survive. I need to work to find a shelter, like a roof over my head. I feel like you need to be very realistic in terms of like what kind of careers you pursue, you know? And and I feel like a lot of times, And this also has to do with my upbringing, right? With parents who, well, my mom, especially, I feel like she was very, she was worried for me, right? It's like every parent worries for their child. They want you to be able to take care of yourself. So it is a lot of the the culture that I'm talking about here is a lot of like finding, uh, prioritizing stability over anything that is like out of pure desire. I'd love to talk a little bit about like the summer and winter breaks in Taiwan because you had this influence of Hong Kong culture. And then um, you would go to Taiwan and like, I, I'm, I'm curious about how those cultures differed or if they did and what, what you, what you saw when you would go over there. Yeah. So I think that, and this is part of the reason why I love Taiwan so much. I feel like every time I was in Taiwan, it was to visit my grandparents. It was, you know, it was for fun. And even though I went for summer school, summer school is more fun than, you know, like normal school. And so my picture of Taiwan, my experiences with Taiwan were always like full of joy. I felt like everyone was happier there. People are, the pace of life is slower there. You know, everyone's like super friendly and I didn't feel the same pressures I felt when I was in Hong Kong. And I think it's just why I, I love everything about it so much and why I feel so strongly about it, even though a much bigger part of my life was spent in Hong Kong. When you were there, like visiting visiting family, um, did food ever play a role uh, uh, in your life at that point? Oh, a hundred percent. I think Taiwan to me is like synonymous with with food because my grandpa, who is now unfortunately passed away, but he was such like a pillar of I think the family in Taiwan. So it's my mom's side of the family that's in Taiwan, and he was this like quiet old man who like never spoke much but like would cook and cook and cook and in many ways to me like I always said like that I realized afterwards that like this was his love language you know like he's not a man who tells you that like I love you or whatever but he will make he will wake up extra early just to go to the market and then like make dumplings fresh in the morning just for you and then like if you're saying I'm hungry he's like give me a second and we'll spend literally like an hour in the kitchen just to make you food like so I think to me right these are the this is why I think food to me has always been so much more than just sustenance because it is the way that I I don't know I guess it's the way that like I felt loved in many ways and that's something that I I really think started with my grandpa because it's just something that I think back then I definitely took for granted. I was like, oh yeah, grandpa's going to make something. But now when I think back on it, it's like, wow, he really did so much for us. You know, people, whenever people ask me like, oh, what's your favorite food to eat off the plane? 
it's a uh, beef noodle soup because my grandpa, every time when we visited, like when we flew in from Hong Kong, he would always wait for Like he would always be like, okay, let's go home. I have beef noodle soup ready for you. Don't eat anything else. So that to me is like something that he would always make from scratch, you know, that, um, that is still, I think right now my favorite food. And I don't know, there's so many memories. Like even when he was making dumplings for us at home. Um, so like Lunar New Year, for example, um, he would make like, I don't know, like 200, 300 dumplings. And where he would play this little game and he would put like lotus seeds in some of them. And if you get the ones with lotus seed, first of all, you have to finish it. And then once you finish it, you get like a little red packet with money, with pocket money. And so, and when he makes these dumplings, I would just stand next to him and just see him roll it out. And just like literally every single wrapper, he would just roll it out by hand. There's like no shortcuts taken. Um, and I would just love watching him do it. Eventually, you would go to international school in the U.S. and New Mexico. Um, so gearing up for that that move and that uh, and that, that next step of your life, what is your perception uh, of America as you're about to like step foot and not 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 just step foot, but like actually live there for a little bit? How are how are you thinking about this transition? So when I finally got the opportunity to come to the States, right? I think I had this like, what's the word? Just like this, it's almost like a dream. It was like this fantasy world of like what America and the possibilities are. I was like, oh, everybody's going to look like Brad Pitt. <laughs> Everyone's going to look, you know, um, and like the food's going to be amazing. I'm going to have burgers every day. And like, but I think more than anything, you know, that's the superficial stuff. But more than anything, it felt to me like I could be anyone. I don't just have to be a lawyer. I don't just have to be a doctor. I, this is my chance to, to see the world beyond Hong Kong, you know? Um, so I was very excited. I think I, I literally growing up, I was always waiting. I always told my friends, like, I'm going to go one day. I'm going to go back to California one day. I'm going to go back to the States one day. Um, I think because that, I don't know. I think in my brain, America was synonymous with all the possibilities in the world. And I think so when I finally got to do it, I was just beyond excited. We're super excited for all these possibilities. What does it actually look like when you get there? Like what is international school in New Mexico like? Um, and also what is it like being outside of Asia? Because we talked a little bit about at the beginning, like you don't realize what your culture is until you're outside of it. So what were you realizing about America as you were ingrained um, in the day-to-day -day life of American culture. Um, but also what was it like, uh, being outside uh, of Asia and maybe viewing Hong Kong, uh, through a different lens and perspective. So I will say that the international school I went to was not, I think your typical international school, this school I went to called United World College. We only had 200 people on campus and every other student is basically from a different country. So it wasn't just American culture. It was all the cultures in the world. And so for me, like, yes, we were in New Mexico, but we were also in like the, the, the campus was the only thing in that zip code. So we were very sort of isolated, but um, I will say what it did. So there was a lot of culture shock, not just from being in America, but just from being around all these people who are asking each other questions about like where you're from, what is it like there, you know? And so for the first time in my life, I was in among people who like had not, they don't, they didn't share the same background I had, you know, they didn't share the same experiences I had. Um, 
And I was, I felt very put up in the spot in the beginning because I was like, they were like, what is Hong Kong like? What, uh, what, what, uh, what do you do there? What does it look like? You know, what are the people like? And I had, these were all questions that I had never really thought about before because nobody would a- ask me that. Um, Like even if I traveled to other parts of Asia, I feel like you know people would still have a common knowledge because they fly around so much. But so I think it was the first time that I really had to think about like, yeah, what what does it mean to have grown up in Hong Kong? What are the Hong Kong specialties? Like, let's talk about like let's say like food. I can talk about food, but also like you know they would be like, what are the cultural uh, what holidays that you celebrate? And and suddenly I have to explain like Lunar New Year and like you know. Mid Autumn Festival and all these things, and so it was very eye opening for me in a in a way that I hadn't. I don't think it was something that I thought about before I traveled over, right? Because all I thought about was like me absorbing all this extra knowledge. Whereas in this context, I'm kind of the one who has to represent in a way of like, let me tell you more about where I'm coming from. And so I think that's where where it all started of like reflecting upon my identity a little bit more. Where do you guys find like common ground? So, because uh, I I can imagine uh, coming from all over the world. Um, uh, I mean, there's there's all there's like different cultural customs. There's different ways to show respect. Um, so, I, I would love to hear a little bit more about the culture shock um, and maybe some examples of that. But also, um, maybe on the flip side, like where, where you all found common ground, like what was, what was the thing uniting this, this whole school where everyone's just so incredibly different? Well, I will say the first, like most common experience was that everyone was so excited to be off on themselves. You know, like everyone was so excited to just be like, I'm away from family. I'm on this campus together. And that I think was really the overarching, like Thing that tied us all together because we were all like young people in this place with a lot to learn and so isolated from everyone that you're almost like very strongly encouraged. Also, there were no phones allowed, so we were very just sort of like strongly encouraged to interact with each other. And I think even though there are a lot of differences in terms of like yes, culture shock because like maybe the etiquette is different. You know, maybe sort of like. Growing up in Hong Kong, I think I was always, I always had a more like sort of conservative nature versus like you know somewhere from uh, someone from I don't know France who was like a lot more open and they greet you with like hello hello a kiss on the cheek and then for me I'm like whoa that's like a lot you know um, so but at the same time I think the similarities right are even the example of like oh my grandparents would make me food that was like a universal thing for a lot of people they were like oh yeah I grew up with like my mom's cooking or like my My grandma's cooking, my sister's cooking, you know. So there's a lot of experiences, like of course, slightly different. But I would say, like even like let's say going to an all-girls school for most of my life, and somebody else has had that same experience, like in in another part of the world, you know. So I would say there are common things, and the more you talk, you realize that on the surface everyone's like very different. But I, I really think underneath it all, there's a lot of similar. And shared experiences that aren't actually that hard for us to relate to each other with. Um, so you have these this experience of like empathy and and a culture shock and and like this cultural melting pot. Um, I imagine you missed home, um, and I imagine in New Mexico there's not a ton of opportunities for finding the type of ingredients maybe that you uh, ate back or like maybe the type of. Um, 
uh, foods that you ate back at home. And so did you start cooking for yourself? Did you, did you bring a little bit of, of the tastes of, of home, uh, uh, to this, this new arena? So yes, yes, I did. Because, um, our cafeteria food was not the best. Uh, it was, uh, it was, it was, I think, uh, but that, that's like for all, I think like schools that have like dorms and stuff, you know, after a while you just get tired of it and like pair that with the homesickness. So of course, um, yeah, I started cooking, uh, a lot more on campus and, um, yeah. And oh, also, so like we also had these uh, on, on campus, we also had these like cultural days. And for one of the events, I made just like beef noodle soup for the entire campus. Um, and uh, that so that was pretty cool. That was the first time I think I made beef noodle soup like period. And it was for like, I don't know, like 300 people. So <laughs> It, but it was it was good it was a very exciting wow, yeah that's insane i know i know like isn't that <laughs> 300 people yeah so but i was just excited i didn't i did i think i did i should have probably thought it through a little bit more because i was like this is a lot it's not just like cooking for one person and like screwing up but hey they liked it so so when you go back to hong kong how are you thinking about um going to college what are you where where you think you want to go um and is is it an obvious choice to go back to the states or is it um a hard decision i think at that point you know after two years so so even before that the reason i went to international school for two years uh was because i wasn't sure yet if i was ready for college um because what I did for the international school was actually two extra years of school. At that point, I had already graduated from 12th grade and I could have gone straight to university, but it was international school was also for me an experience to try and see if I was okay with living on my own and, you know, being in America. Um, And so after those two years, I think it only solidified the fact that like, I was like, I I, want to go to college here. This is where I want to learn and continue growing. So how do you decide on the College of Idaho? When it came to applying colleges, also, I was very young still, I think. Um, and I, of course, wanted to go to all the like Ivy Leagues. I wanted to apply to all the schools that had like the huge names because, well, partially because my parents wanted it. I wanted it. You know, it, it's more of those. Um, yeah, I feel like like everyone else I wanted. But I feel like I also grossly underestimated myself. So like what I did was I literally only applied to like the highest tier schools and then I didn't apply to like anything else. So so what happened was I did not get accepted into any of the higher like any of the Ivy Leagues I I applied to which honestly I'm not surprised thinking back on it. But um and then what happened was then I was like okay then what do I do now? Do I wait another year and try to apply again? You know, like what's the situation here? My international school has some relationships with like several colleges in the states. So I just sat down with the guidance counselor and like I was obviously like freaking out and um I think they were like, like I'm not going to go to college. Yeah, I'm, like, I'm not going to go to college. I failed my parents. I don't know what I'm doing. What should I do? Should I go home? Um, but I think what happened was that obviously told me to like be calm. It's okay. We're going to figure it out. And at that point too, one of, um, I think one of uh, 
my, what do you call it? My second years, which is how we refer to the people above us back then who had already gone to the College of Idaho. He, uh, I think I, my guidance counselor linked me up with him and the admissions officer there and said like, they would love to have me, you know, they really want, um, um, because I think they also were trying to recruit more international students. They wanted more kind of like, uh, representation on campus and they were like we think you would love it here we're happy to like you know um and they they had like a rolling admission is that what you call it um and then they were offering me like a full scholarship they were basically giving me the entire package they're like just come to us we would love to have you even though i hadn't applied you know they were like if you apply now we're happy to review it so it was really just like very fortunate i think that um there was that relationship there. Right. Yeah. But I mean, it, 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 it seems like everything came together. You went to the, to the right school and then the, and then it seems like the college of Idaho was like, okay, like I see everything you've done and we want you here. Um, so when you went to the college of Idaho, um, you, I, I guess I, I want to discover, understand your, um, move towards film because it, didn't start necessarily as um, as being interested in film. And I, I don't I don't think the College of Idaho even had a film studies major. Um, so how did you find your way towards uh, uh, film within the so college? So I think there were always parts of that thread through, you know, my my experience growing up. And the the reason I actually started thinking of film as an opportunity was not even because of like making film it was because I took a film studies course in my freshman year and I thought it was fascinating I mean it was very different from like actually being on set and filming because this is more like an academic like you know analysis sort of role um but even in even within that realm I was like oh this is so cool I want to explore this a little more so I started looking into like okay what are the sort of roles that I can take in within this industry, you know, cause it's so huge. Is there a, a, a path for me here? And I would love to go next to like, um, starting film club on campus, because again, like there, it, it seemed like you, you had an ability to create the opportunities that you wanted to. So how did you start diving more into film after this class? So, um, the truth is after I took this class, and I started considering film as an option, I thought about transferring out of the school because I was like, oh, College of Idaho doesn't have film as a major and I want to explore this more. But then I had another conversation with, this time it was the academic officer at College of Idaho. And they were saying like, instead of thinking about the opportunities you don't have here, why don't you try creating them yourself, you know, like, why don't you, this is an opportunity for you to start something here. Whereas if you go there, you would just be part of something, but here you can own something. And I think that's when I really started leaning into this idea of like taking initiative. And so for, so I think that it was also that officer who told me that back way back then they had somebody do a film club, but it kind of kind of died. And like, he was like, so maybe that's something that can inspire you to, to, to try and do something here. So that's when I started the film society. And in, in adjacent to that, 
I was also talking to our marketing department because at that point, College of Idaho had like a little YouTube channel. And I was like, oh, I feel like this is a chance for me to help them create videos. I originally, I saw, I was like, oh, is there anything we can do for you? And the person, the marketing department head, the video marketing department head was like, how about you sign on? How about you come join me as an intern? Was that the first time that you got involved in YouTube? Yes. So that was the first time that I did anything on YouTube from like the production standpoint. I, at that point, I was just like a, an avid consumer of content. What did you think uh, getting on the other side of it? Um, was YouTube something at this point that felt tangible and, and real and that you could like move forward with? Or was it like, okay, like this is just a stepping stone to real film or as like, as, as someone might think at that point. Yeah. So I think at that point, I don't, I didn't really consider working on YouTube as a, as an option yet. So I think for me, it was more just a lot of learning, like actual filming, um, and it's more about the shooting, the ideation, but not so much even geared for YouTube yet. It was still very much like the initial steps of like, what is even filming? Like, what does work look like in this industry on this level? Yeah. And and I feel like you didn't just want to see it at the college level. Like you want to see it at the, the highest level um, and maybe bring those two worlds together. Um, so when did you start uh, planning a trip to the Sundance Film Festival? The Sundance Film Festival, I, I believe I also learned about it through my film studies course because my professor at that point, I think he was involved. Uh, he like knew people involved with it to some extent. And so that's when I started exploring like, oh, this is the place where like a lot of new films come out. And this is a place where, you know, a lot of like really knowledgeable film people get together and watch films. I feel like this is a great opportunity for us to just be there and just absorb all this like, knowledge there right like just to see what it's like because we don't know what it's like and so I that's when I think like I approached him and then I was able to kind of reach out and you know organize this little campus trip for the members of the organization and allow us to go and like watch and what was it like actually being at Sundance like what what did that open up for you in your mind I will say at that point because I was so young, you know, like, did I really know what I was doing? Probably not. You know, I just remember it was the concept that blew my mind, you know, and being actually being there and like seeing people stand up and like clap and like talk about like hearing snippets of conversation of like how people were like, oh, that was the greatest film ever. You know, I think more than anything, it was just like realizing that there is a world out there where people are are so fascinated with, with this industry that they are willing to do all these things to be part of it. Yeah. And again, like you're, you're, you're heading towards this, this land of legitimacy where like you're seeing people perform at the highest level in this, in this industry. And it's like, okay, like if these people can do it, maybe, maybe I can too. Um, but I'm, I'm curious to hear how your, or like, I guess what your parents thought, of this this growing interest um and also as you're maybe go going back to, to hong kong or other places for internships are you thinking like okay i i need to get a film internship um or are you still trying to fit into a mold of 
maybe what is more acceptable in, in the Hong Kong world. I will say my parents were not the most excited about this turn of events. I mean, my mom was not happy with it for one. She was like, this is all a dream, you know, like you should be a little more rooted to the ground, you know, like it's great to have dreams, but like your dreams will not pay the bills. So like, maybe you should think about something else. And then my dad was like, I support you, but I only support you if you become like the Academy Award winning director. Like that's like, if you go the path, it's like that or nothing. And so I was like, woof, these are like not really the most like encouraging messages to have. Um, and then, and then, Yes. Yikes. I mean, but like understandable, you know, it's understandable. I get it. Like it is, it is a lot to, to, to take. When I was in Hong Kong, I wanted to try and explore something different. Cause I was like, okay, maybe I just need to give these other things a chance. So I applied to this company as an internship. They had this like summer trainee program, you know? And so I was like, okay, I'm just going to give this a try. And the reason I remember it so vividly is because one of the questions that they asked at the seminar was, what's your biggest dream? Okay. And then this one guy raised his hand and he said, my dream is to be able to buy an apartment. Okay. This was his dream. His biggest dream in the world was to buy an apartment. And then the guy, the, the host asked, okay, how many other people share this as their biggest dreams? And like 99, like I kid you not, 99% of the room raised their hands. Like this was their biggest dream in life to, to buy an apartment in the city, which I get because an apartment is so expensive. But at the same time, I think to me, I just remember sitting there and being like, this is, this is not it for me. Like, I don't want this to be my biggest dream. Like that should be, that's a necessity. That is not a desire. That is not a like you are so much more than what, than just buying an apartment, you know? And, um, I remember relaying this to my mentor as part of the, the trainee program. You know, I told him, I was like, I don't know if this is for me. Like, I, I still want to pursue film, you know, cause I was, I had to be honest about like kind of what I wanted to do. Right. Um, and he told me, and this was, this is mentor. Like I, I truly like, I respected him so much. Like, I think he was a very good mentor figure for me, but he, he told me, and I think it's great that you have such big dreams, but I think sometimes you just need to think more realistically. Like, I, I think you're dreaming too much. You know, I think you need to anchor yourself mm. back down. And I just remember being so sad. You know, I was so disappointed because I was like, I know I can do it. Like I'm doing like at that point, right. In Idaho, I was already doing things. I was make, I was doing this organization thing. I was like organizing things to Sundance. Like, I'm like, but I'm, I'm, I'm on my way. Like, I don't want, like, don't tell me I can't do it. You know, like it was kind of that mentality. And I feel like in many ways that almost like solidified my desire to continue what I was doing because it's almost like part of me wanted to prove them wrong. You know, it was like, you, you, we can be so much more than this. So, yeah. And you're just getting started too. And it's like, you have all of this momentum and it's like, how can you say that I should ground myself before I've even had the chance to really like try and soar, like try this, try this dream. Yeah. Um, like I, like I feel like I maybe would get that advice if you're like going at it for like five, 10 years and like, not like there's no momentum, but you're like, 
This is like the beginning, like, like, like allow yourself to fail and try these things, right? How are you trying to figure out your career path? What are your parents thinking about what you're doing? Where are you in the world? How are you figuring out how to support yourself? Actually, the first time I applied to Tasty was when I was still in college and then I never heard back. And then I was like, okay, well, that's it. You know, and I put that down for a little bit and then I graduated. You know, I mean, well, I did two study abroad programs, which was really cool. I think I got to see more of the world on one and I got to study film a little bit on one. But then it was graduation and I did not know what I was going to do. You know, I some people, I think they graduate with like a job ready for them. I did not have I didn't even know what job I wanted to apply to, like at that point. And so my dad's suggestion was like, why don't you take a year off and just do a little bit of traveling, you know? So I backpacked around China for most of that year, just like going around. It was the one time in my life where I wasn't tied down by any responsibilities yet. It's almost like you can say that I was procrastinating on figuring out my life. But at the same time, I feel like I was learning a lot more about myself. And like, you know, it was like one of those like self self exploration. It sounds really cheesy, but I really do think a lot of the memories and experiences I had on that trip is still relevant now to me in my line of work. Um, but yeah, so I took a year off and then I told my parents like, I'm just gonna go to LA. I'm gonna go to LA because that's where all the films are made. That's where I feel like I have to be for, for, for this industry. And so I moved to LA. The first two months I was trying to apply to like a million jobs. I was lucky enough to have my parents support me, you know, for rent and stuff, but I felt really guilty. Like, I think there was this huge feeling of guilt because one, I knew this wasn't the career that they wanted me to pursue. And two, I wasn't making any income and I, and LA rent was really expensive. And so that's when I took like a part-time job. I was a server at like a hot pot restaurant in the area I was living in. So I was really living how people picture the struggling artist to be, you know, but, but I think for me, it was, it was good because it was, there was also almost a part of me that was like, I need to experience this. I need to really fight for this, you know, it's cause it's not easy. Like I knew in my head, it wasn't easy. I was like also cold calling companies, you know, like, Hey, like I would love to intern for you. Like you don't have to pay me or like whatever. <laughs> I will do work for free. Just give me experience. Honestly. Yes. Like this struggle is so real. And I, I relate so hard. Like I remember just coming back to my Airbnb that that was my, that I was renting like a little room in like a house. And just like there were days when I would just sit there and like, wonder if I made the right decision. You know, I was like, I don't know if this is the right choice. I'm not making any money. Should I not have been so stubborn? Should I just have got, you know, pursued something safe, you know? And I think ultimately it was me who told my parents, like, look, give me just like one or two more months. If I can't find a job in these, in, in this industry, I will find another job. It doesn't matter what job it is. I'll just find another job and, and I'll just do that. So you gave an ultimatum for yourself. Yes, because, you know, guilt was a huge driving force for me. Like as much as I wanted it, I didn't want to be holding anyone down, even though maybe I wasn't. But in my mind, I was like, I'm a disappointment and I don't want to be a disappointment, you know. Um, so it was really it was that was the part of my life where like when I almost like I, I guess like gave up on my dream. And that must have been like a super tough period of time because it's like so many people 
it doesn't work out for them and, 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 or, or they don't, they don't push enough or they don't give themselves enough time or the economics gets in the way and, um, they have to pursue the safe option. And then it's like, does that opportunity appear again? Yeah. Right. And th- th- there's, there's big stakes at this point. When do you get a little bit of a break? So Food Beast is a media production company. It's like a, they work primarily with, with food content. It wasn't tasty per se, but it was, I think, more in lines of like digital media, which was an area that I was really starting to lean into um, because of BuzzFeed. And so I reached out to somebody who worked at Food Beast at that time. And uh, literally on LinkedIn, I just sent them a message. He was like, all right, if you want to come and like give it a try, because I know you have video editing experience, let's give it a try. So I got in my car and drove one and a half hours to the OC and I did it. And he was like, okay, come back. And then that's how I got the internship. And so for, I think at least like two months of my life, I was driving one and a half hours every day to this internship and driving one and a half hours back to, to sleep. Wow. That is commitment. Yes. But like, you know, I think at that point you, you, I was just so relieved that I got anything remotely similar to what I wanted to do, you know, and I was learning a little bit of like what virality meant. I was learning like what food production looks like, you know, it was the first time I saw like a set for food, you know, like of working with food stylists, you know, things like that. But then, so at that point, but I was still an intern, right. And I was still applying at a million jobs. And in that time of my life was my second attempt at applying to Buzzfeed this time as a video fellow. And so I remember getting a call, like I jumped on an interview with them and I was like, okay, it went up. But I feel like at that point I didn't like, I don't want to say I was like so defeated that I didn't get my hopes up, but I was just like, okay, the interview is there. I just hope for the best fingers crossed. But like, if it doesn't like, it's okay. Just keep looking forward. And it was actually one day when I was um, preparing for a shoot for uh, food beast that I got a call from the person who interviewed me at Buzzfeed. And she was just like, hey, I just wanted to call you to see if you had any other questions. And I was so caught off off guard because I was like, I am about to go on the shoot. We're just waiting for talent to get here. But um, I will call you back if I have any questions. And she was like, okay, call me back when you can. And then I hung up and then I was like, that was really weird. Why would she just call me to ask me if I had any questions? I feel like I'm missing something here. So I like excused myself (laughs) and went to the bathroom. And, call, and like immediately thought of some questions, whatever. Literally 15 minutes later, I was like, hi, I'm so sorry. I'm just calling back and I asked my questions. And at the end of the call, she was like, great, thanks for your questions. I just wanted to let you know that we have accepted you as a video fellow. But the first thing I said was like, is this a joke? Is this a prank? Like I was, I was so like shocked, you know? Cause I was like, what, what, did, what just happened? Like, uh, what? Um, but so that's how I got it how I knew that I got the video fellowship and I was just so thrilled, I think. Yeah. And then I believe the next day was when I told uh, the people at Food Beast and they were really happy for me, which I so appreciate. So the first thing I did that night was call my parents. Yeah. So what are they thinking? They're obviously just like, what, what is going on? You know? Cause the first time I'm telling them, it's like, I got into Buzzfeed. They're like, what is Buzzfeed? Like, I was like, I've told you about this company before. Like I told you this is kind of what I want. <laughs> Anyways. But my point was, I was like, I'm going to go to New York, 
you know, because I was like, if there's one company I'm going to fight in New York for, this is the company. This is a company that I wanted to apply to years ago that I couldn't get in. And now I got in, so I'm going. But my parents, as confused as they were, I think they were just relieved almost that like, okay, great. Like you're on path or something. They were like looking up what BuzzFeed is, like what the, you know, like, is this a legitimate company? You know, all that stuff. Um, but they supported me at that point to, to move to, to New York. So, yeah. That must have felt really good. I was ecstatic. I was so happy. Like, I think for me, because a lot of times people are like, oh, what's your dream job? You know, and at that point, this was my dream job. Just stepping into that office, I think to me just felt like it felt so surreal, you know, because I was like, everything I've done up to now, it's worth it because I'm here now. You know, I, I was able to make this happen. Um, yeah, I... I still remember the joy I felt that day. I'm like receiving like all the like merchants. It's so, it's so nerdy. It's so geeky. But like for me to be able to recognize that my efforts paid off, that was honestly the biggest satisfaction. This is maybe one of the most momentous times where it's like, okay, all this hard work that I've done has paid off. Now I, I can climb even higher. I can go wherever I want. Um, so what did the fellowship program actually look like? Social and I, I can't remember what I did, so I don't know about. <laughs> but social, it was like creating memes. That's that's the first assignment we had to do. But you know, it was a lot about like how to think Buzzfeed. The second assignment I did was for was to write an article. Uh, and again, this was just to help you learn the Buzzfeed voice and to develop your own voice to see like what kind of your interests are and how I could fit in with with Buzzfeed as a company. And and I remember for that article too, I was struggling to find out like to figure out like oh what should I write about you know and it was a video fellowship head who encouraged me she was like you shared a lot in your interview about like your Asian Asian American experience is that something that you would want to write about and I was like oh yeah I I don't know if anybody would want to read that but okay I will write that so I wrote this article uh, on like Asian parents 29 things that are too damn real for people raised by Asian parents yes and it went viral on, on the, the website. And it was just like little things of like, you, you don't wear shoes in a house or like, you know, you, um, food is the, the love language, you know, kind of things like that. Um, and I, as happy as I was that it worked well, that it, it, re it was received well, I think for me it was acknowledging that like people do love to learn more about stuff like, because it wasn't just like, even though it was like the Asian American, Asian experience, a lot of other like POC uh, related to all of the points I made, you know, they were like, and this goes back to like what we were saying about like the shared experiences across cultures. Like these are a lot of like common experiences everybody loves, everyone relates to. That was the time when I was like, okay, so I think this is the space for me. It validates like the, your, your own experience too. It's like, like I have the ability to authentically express myself to the internet, to this wide swath of people. And they are accepting of that. Yes. You know, I think a lot of times with virality, people always think about like, oh, what's viral, you know, like, I just want to, I just want to do what's viral, you know, but, but, but that's how content becomes saturated right? Like, because there's so much content out there. And if you're all everybody's trying to do what's the popular thing to do, then then they all become the same thing. And so for me, it was like, oh, my perspective can add to this conversation. 
And so I think in many ways, even now, my content is shaped the same way. And that leads into like when I did my video assignment, right? I was like, okay, what can I offer here? And um, the first ever video I did actually was uh, Asian Americans try Asian Halloween costumes. It's the it's a more like it's like a fun, lighthearted video that has a more like heavier context. But it was again yeah, there's the social identity. commentary built in yes, there. Yes, yes, yes. It was also exploration for me because I was like, okay, this is this does hit upon that like identity conversation that I want to have. But is there a way for me to to do it that is a little more exploratory? You know, like um, or maybe palatable. Like in that video you're playing around with this idea of like, okay, I'm trying to communicate something that is a problem or something that needs to be addressed or uh, a conversation that needs to happen, but I need to express it in a way that's actually like going to be palatable. And so actually people actually watch it and it reaches people. Yeah. 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 It was definitely one of the things where I felt like, is there another way I can approach this? Or, or is there another way that I can lead into this conversation about learning about different cultures without being so aggressively opinionated? I don't know, you know, because that video was very controversial in, in a way of like, you know, people had very strong feelings about it. And so the next video I did, which is where I kind of dived into food a little bit more, was that uh, people tried gourmet instant ramen. And it was just like, you know, people trying different instant ramens from um, all around Asia. And this idea came from when I first came from Hong Kong to New Mexico. And they told me that there was only one brand of instant ramen and most people microwave their instant ramen. I was, t I was shocked. I was like, what? And so this video came from that point where I was like, the world needs to know that there are greater things like instant ramen should be should be loved and not like considered the cheap college food, you know, and it, it got that reaction. A lot of people were like, I didn't even know that food like this existed. I think that's when the, the, the spark really, really started of like, like I was like, this is this is what I want to do. This is what I came to do. So you're doing these one off videos with BuzzFeed. And in 2020, there's two things that I, I'd love to to dive into. Um, one being, um, being like the co-creator and lead for about to eat. Um, and then, uh, two starting your personal channel and from the outside perspective, that seems like a, uh, a leg up or a, um, or, or, or like, like a, a sign of taking more ownership because like, if you can build your own channel, um, then that creates so much freedom and possibility and, um, and growth, like that maybe could be like the next Buzzfeed. And then with about to eat, it's like, you, now you have this, this show, um, that you have more creative control over. And most likely I'm, uh, I don't know what the deal structure would be, but more ownership over, um, uh, at least creatively, possibly economically as well. So I'd love to dive into those, those two, um, those two projects. So I would say, you know, at Buzzfeed for the longest time for, three and a half to four years, I was mostly just doing these like one-off videos or like, you know, mini series. Um, and then I think during quarantine, and I say, I talk about quarantine because like there was so much time at home with myself. Um, I wanted to just try something new, you know, and um, as great as is, 
as great as it is to work for a huge platform like like BuzzFeed, I feel like a lot of times working in a company, you can't entirely shape content the way you want it to be. You know, I think there's like a natural pace that you have to fit in, for example, or tone. Whereas I was like, what if I approach this the way that I wanted to approach it? You know, that that it's no notes. It's just just me as it is, as I wanted to present to the world. And that's when I started doing a lot of these videos on my own channel. And they're they were more like relaxed paced, you know, they're more slow paced, they're a little more like friendly, they're not like as crazy, you know, like chaotic energy. It's a lot of times just me trying to be as, it's almost like being with a friend, you know, I think that's kind of the energy that I wanted to to translate. And, and I think it, it was, for me, my channel was like this, almost like an emotional outlet for me to be able to do whatever I wanted, you know, after having to be so structured in the way I think for you know to put a video on like a much larger platform this was like almost like a, a sigh of relief if you will it was like here here it is something that is more more me and I want you to have it and then in line with that I think about to eat which is a channel that I co-created with a bunch of with a few other producers um we wanted to carve out a space where in food were these producers at BuzzFeed yes we wanted to create a space that was that felt a little more from the heart because that's the content we wanted to make. Not to say the other content isn't, but I think we wanted it to feel it kind of in line with, I guess, my channel where I wanted things to feel a little more personal. You know, I think we wanted to approach content in a way that felt exploratory. That wasn't just like, what's the next viral thing? But like, let's talk about food. It's almost like having like an because we were all people, we're all people who like share this passion for food. We could talk about food for hours. And we're like, we want to create a space for people who, who, who like to get nerdy about food, who, who want to discover, you know, not just the recipes, but like, why, why is this recipe even here? You know, and or so like, that's also where I do like my 24, for example, my 24 hours frame, which is a, a show that I do, you know, I've done a lot for BuzzFeed my approach has changed where before it was more like look at this cool thing and like look at this uh you know it's just like very like snappy and now it's more like hey like i have a recipe book or like i'm gonna dive into this culture today and we're going to just come explore with me you know Let, let's 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 just relax but like learn about something new and and it's very much more like discovery it's very more about curiosity which which is something that i know that we all wanted to do and, and being able to kind of create a channel, a, a space for that with, with an audience now that has grown to appreciate it. I think that to me has been like an incredible next step to, to kind of explore like a different area of, of creativity for me. What you are, are most excited about and working on now um, and what the, what, what, what the future looks like. Right now, what I'm most excited about is, I really think I want to, I want to work on my channel some more. I want to do more things where I feel like right now I'm in this phase too of like, you know, with TikTok growing and all these things, there's so much, con there's it, everything out there is so loud right now where I'm like, I want to see if I could develop something new and I want it to be for my own channel. You know, I want to do something that feels, I don't know, that feels different in a way that adds to the conversation. This is what I, I think my biggest fear is like, further saturating content that's already out there. And I think my my joy comes from being able to discover something new that people also enjoy and love. So I think that's that's my next goal that I'm 
excited to work on. If you were to like drop back in time to give yourself a piece of advice, or if you were to give a piece of advice to someone who was is going through that now, um, what piece of advice do you think you would give that person to make the road uh, a little bit more efficient, a little less, uh, maybe with a little less heartache? Um, what advice do you think you would give that person? My advice for those who are, you know, still trying to build a path for themselves is like, I know, again, it's been said before, but I really think it's important to just keep pushing through. You know, I think for me, that was the biggest thing. If I had given up at that point, at the first sign of failure, I would not be where I am now. Like, I really think you have to constantly remind yourself that what you're doing is worth it. And it really is. Even every failure, I really do think just contributes to a future success. Like, and I'm not just saying this for it to sound good, but I think that everything I've learned from, from failing has in many ways helped me even now. So the biggest thing really is to be as, as strong as you can, you know, and just believe that it's going to go somewhere because that belief really is what's going to help you stay determined and keep going on. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Finding Founders Podcast on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Finding Founders is produced and hosted by me, Samuel Donner. Our Chief of Staff and Operations is Jessica Lin. Our audio editing team lead is Adrian Tapia. Support from Irene Van Berkel, Matt Fernandez, Renee Buchanan, Sophia Donner, David Saidi, Ashley Jimenez, Nicholas Guzman, Aaron Devereaux, Sanessa Gisley, and Luis Choi. Our outreach and research lead is Kenny Ong. With support from Sarah Hobson, Cherise Tan, Harushi Kanauchi, Kristen Hagelin, Aya Cortez, and Valencia Lu. Our writing team lead is Elizabeth Bowen with support from Aiden Ashworth, Nikki Mukawa, Sylvie Wong, and Eric Mena. Our design team lead is Shruti Ramanand with support from Tiffany Dang, Yao Liu, and Dina Gabriel. To see more of what we're up to, subscribe to our newsletter at findingfounders.co. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.